Catherine. And I'm Gail. And welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, our award-winning weekly podcast. Please visit womenover70.com and consider joining our Aging Reimagined Circle, which is the sustaining membership fund. So we may continue to inspire women to age with curiosity, courage, and creativity. Members enjoy monthly programming and probing discussions, and we hope to see you there. And today we're delighted to have with us Dr. Cheryl Keene. Uh, Dr. Keene, Cheryl, age 71, is from the college town of Yellow Springs, Ohio, and she believes deeply in the power of community to make good change. She's a progressive educator and leader who's reformed what needs improving and created what was missing. Recently retired, Cheryl's career can be characterized as she says, scholarly activism. So she's developed and directed innovative programs. She's mentored and taught, she's done conducted research and she's done a considerable amount of speaking and writing. She's influenced the lives of youth, both gifted and at risk as well as adults and degree programs and community groups. Along, among the strands that have marked her work are peace and justice, civic and global education, experiential learning and spirituality. Cheryl is a practicing Quaker and has engaged in communal living all of her adult life. It takes only a brief interaction with Cheryl to know that she tries to live her values in all that she does. So I've had the pleasure of working with Cheryl at Walden University, where we served on dissertation committees together. And in March of 2023, I had the good fortune of sharing this marvelous trip in Morocco with Cheryl and her husband and, and their friends. So welcome, Cheryl, to Women Over 70. We're happy to have Hello. you with us. Hello, Cheryl. <laughs> so Cheryl, um, is there anything you want to add to what I just, how I introduced you in terms of your career path? Is there anything that you'd like to elaborate on or highlight? Well, I'll, I'll share some things, but one response I have when I hear all that is, wow, when we live this long, there's all these chapters of our life, like there was that and this, and and I've noticed that life often followed the pattern of seven years. I heart, I don't think I ever had a sabbatical, even though I've been this, you know, a scholar activist, I um the choice to always take on a new challenge meant walking away from the privilege of sabbaticals or not having that kind of contract. But anyway, life does seem to fall in patterns of four and uh, of seven and four, of fourteen or fifteen. So, um, so when I I worked, I've shared seven jobs or worked side by side with my husband Jim Keen, which has been one just remarkable experience of being able to collaborate. And one time we when we applied to be the uh, dean of faculty at Antioch College, which is how I got in this little college town 27 years ago, people said, well, like, what do we do if you fight? You know, like, and in a way, it's a prejudiced question, right? Against that couples fight, right? And it interferes with other people. That might be their family story. So what we found, I you know, think other, you know, people hired us probably found we got, they got better value out of two of us because, well, what did we talk about at night? You know, you just finished you keep working and you do more work for the movement or the, the agency. So, and I, I met him because I went as a, um, I finished college in three years. My Dean had pulled me aside. He was my advisor and he said, you're going to get bored in your fourth year. And this is Bethany college in the panhandle, West Virginia, near where I grew up in Pittsburgh, where my dad worked for us steel and now defunct, uh, rather defunct industry. Um, so I, 
it was very near Kent State. I got to college like the year after Kent State and the energy was still vibrating there. And I had this idea that I was gonna bring peace to the world. I, that now that I understand adolescence, right? And late adolescence, right? I can't believe my arrogance, right? So if I just prepared myself better, right? I could do this and I was good. I was learning about the power of teaching. So I would do it by being a peace educator, which was a really new concept. Got involved in a, uh, running a little conference in our little college town that sort of advertised it nationally, of course, before the web. How do you do this? And we had a speaker, the only author of a book that said peace studies on it in the college library was this guy, Ted Lentz, who was a peace researcher. Another like mind blowing idea. He came from St. Louis. He was near retirement. And he uh, asked, he said, either you, you come and work with me as an intern and live in my basement in St. Louis, or you go work with Leonard Berkowitz, the expert in the um, bop, bebop doll thing where they were training kids to hit a blow up doll with a stick and found out that they could teach kids violence, right? So, I'd, or, or you go to Harvard and work with this guy, Don Oliver in the masters. Well, the Harvard thing was pretty jazzy, right? My family was not academically oriented. We, you know, didn't have a big choice matrix. So I went there with this idea of peace education. In the meantime, Don Oliver gotten very alienated about conventional schooling and was studying community and learning through the immersion of community life. But I met Jim very early on and we went on a campaign and went to every faculty member at Harvard who taught anything related to peace, justice, human rights, and said, let's start a peace studies program in it. They, they couldn't resist, now when I look back, the idealism of, of um, young, young adults who believe they could make a difference. Many of them having, of course, tried in their careers and you know, were on a saggy side of that. Um, the Vietnam War probably exhausting some of them. One being Louis Sohn, who had, had been uh, part of the charter group of the United Nations. So anyway, we got to do this marvelous thing and I learned a lot about innovation. And, uh, but then eventually we were maybe so successful that when we finished our doctorates and we were no longer local graduate students, we got called into the international studies office and were asked for the keys basically. <laughs> so uh, we went on and um, did some other marvelous things where during that time, I had the opportunity to work in an adult degree program, a residential one where we live with the adults for uh, two, two weeks that later became maybe 10 days just incredibly transformative to be with adults who were taking this big risk to finish their bachelor's degree. And that was at Goddard. One of the two colleges I worked at that folded fiscally later revived. So it's just being on the edge, right? And you do the best you can, but there's financial problems. Like if we're not in sync, the grant money goes away. Um, and we also had the opportunity to work uh, to design a thrilling thing for me. I was 30 years old and pregnant to design a summer program for the gifted youth of New Jersey focused on peace and justice issues. We called it um, Public Issues in the Future of New Jersey. That sounded a little more palatable for the legislator, fully funded by New Jersey. And we did that for 13 years. So to that 14 year thing, I said, I had an itch. We had to do something else, but a tremendous thread in our life from the young people that we met there who are now in their forties and fifties, who are many of whom are still in our life and we get to mentor them. and learned about their transitions. And um, and that overlaid with the calling to uh, work on what later became to be called service learning as a movement in higher ed. And I got to 
I get to push that as a movement, practice it in the governor's school, but make it happen um, through the incredible money that was available in higher ed in the 80s and early 90s. Lots of grant money, lots of meeting important, wonderful people, incredible collaborators at national conferences, feeling supported as a young woman and also finding you know colleagues to work on. And I got to help manifest that in the year-long Quaker Voluntary Service Program, which was like um, 14 other denominations were doing in a year's service after college. I got to be their evaluator, so I got to know a lot about these programs and the impact it had. And then all during that period, we wrote this book with two other people, uh, Jim, Jim Keen and I, with uh, Larry Dalos and Sharon Parks, called Common Fire, Leading Lives of Commitment in a Complex World. The mm -hmm. research at which was interviewing 100 people, more than 100 people, but who had seemingly committed their lives and trying to understand how they got there. Like, what could we learn about education or development to get more people to take on these commitments? It was, that was a tremendous experience. That was 12 plus years of our life, literally, to get that, that one huge research project and book out. But it became a, a ticket for me to be able to talk about some of the things I cared about, right? Because we wrote this book that people were reading in service learning programs. But also, I had a single message to deliver based on that research, which is if you want people to care for the world and reorganize their life to manifest that in a way that they had to have deep encounters across boundaries of perceived difference. So that became this sort of new flag we got to wave a lot about the power of experiential education and crossing boundaries of discomfort and then taking in new stories and new understanding from that. A little bit like this trip to Morocco that Catherine and I took back this month. It was my my recent manifestation Making of that. Making me jealous. I should <laughs> <laughs> so I was supposed we, to be on that trip, right. I'm exhausted listening to you, Cheryl, just exhausted. And you have <laughs> so much and you've had, it seems, a very deep purpose in all of the work that you have done. And that, that really comes across. And so um, I'm sure you're leaving a ton of legacy for learning in a new way, as I know Catherine is also. And uh, and so it's fascinating to listen to you. It really so Cheryl, is, uh, is Common Fire still in print? It is. It's one because... of the social science books that has been, it's been in print for more than 25 years. And sold about 30,000 copies, made 25,000. Well, I think I've bought at least 100 copies. It is. It just affected me so profoundly. I used it as a required reading in courses that I taught. It just it really moved me as a pro progressive educator. So I've thanked you before, but I'm thank you again for, for writing that book. And I hope if people have any interest, I mean, we have so many social activist guests and listeners. Um, this is a book really well worth reading you see yourself in it and <laughs> so, better okay. for having four authors for frames yeah. right a, a yeah. lot of challenge to stick together for those years and get that product mm -hmm. done we had a and we had grant support yeah. <laughs> so is there anything else you want to say about well working with jim or i, I um you 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 live communally i know for most of your adult life you and jim right yes what, what can you tell us about that? You know, I was going to bring visual aid. So one is the um, when when Quakers marries Jim. Jim was what's called a birthright friend. His mother was a Quaker in Richmond, Indiana, where Earlham College is. That's a stronghold mm. of of Quakers. And um, I was looking for a faith that reflected my concerns. 
knew nothing about Quakerism, but I met Jim at Harvard, who was this handsome older doctoral student. I was just a master's student, but he, we got, we got it with each other. And he took me to meeting. It was like immediately, I, oh, this is it. This is, I get it. It's, it's also incredibly feminist religion in the sense there's no pastor, right? You sit in si silence and this particular uh, thread of Quakerism, you sit in silence if somebody feels moved to speak, you got to stand up and speak, right? So women have been leaders, you know, in uh, Quaker faith for a long time. Anyway, when you get married, uh, Quakers won the right 300 years ago to marry each other in, in this sense and in the light of the meeting. So the meeting became the legal docu documentor, right, of this group thing. And so the hundred or so people that were at our wedding all signed our certificate. So they're part of the legal documentation and the spiritual documentation. And they say, I am here because I'm going to support you in your marriage, right? And I'm signing my name. <laughs> I'll do that. So that, that made total sense to me. And um, so when we were, you know, financially broke graduate students, we uh, brought a couple people into our flea bag apartment, one of whom was one of the world's experts in kibbutz studies. So there we have this community thing. We build our ideas together. He's now, this is Joseph Blasi, now uh, the, one of the world's experts in worker ownership. Um, and then these other young Quakers said, you've got to come see this empty room in our house in Dorchester, Massachusetts. So I don't know, right? Anyway, got on the subway and uh, we moved into a small mansion that had been bought for $13,000 as the neighborhood declined. And we lived in that house for 10 years with a, a fluctuating group of people. Became hard, we learned, in our uh, mid-30s to sustain that it's such an intentional community. But boy, did it help us financially. It helped us raise our kid. Um, we did the best we could in that neighborhood. We all started a daycare. Um, we, did, we did our best. And then we moved to New Jersey. And the big group move there was to take Jim's parents with us who were in a neighborhood that was also decaying and as elders, they needed a safer place. So then we moved to New Jersey living with Jim's parents, but then living all, all in the summer months in our um, governor's school with all these, with these hundred kids and 15, ama 20 amazing staff. So that was an, another 13 years of our life living in that kind of communal thing with lots of people in and out of our house. And then here in Yellow Springs, uh, where we had to buy a house big enough for Jim's parents. We had people also living with us and then people a little taking care of them. And we probably in the 27 years we've been here had about 25 people living with us over time, often single women in their 50s and 60s trying to figure out kind of what's next. And they'd stay with us for a couple of years till the next thing unfolded. Uh, young college graduates, a college dorm got moldy and we had a bunch of college graduates or college students at our house that year. Oh, just wonderful, wonderful stories to make use of space. It just ethically, I have to make use of the space that I have. I live in a town everybody wants to live in and rents are very high. So we should share. And we just like the interest of having like-minded people. We never advertise for renters. We just wait till in our Quaker understanding, wait until the spirit sort of brings us someone or in a synchronistic way. It's like, oh, this person. Um, and now we live, and because Jim has diabetes and we learned that he does better in the cold winter in the South, and at the bottom of the market, we got a condo in, a, in the greenest community in Fort Myers, mm -hmm. just 56 doors where we can actually know our neighbors and there's several Quakers in that community. And now I'm on the board and now I manage another community, which sometimes is too much, <laughs> I've told Catherine, 
because I'm on the board, I hear all the complaints, right? And I know too much about my neighbors, <laughs> way, way too much about my neighbors. And I've been in most of their homes. I know if their faucet's leaking or their daughter's, you know, bugging them or it's just like our student, our doctoral students after we've worked them for, you know, five years, it's, <laughs> that's enough. I don't need to know that much about you at this point. But so that toleration of um, uh, the stress that you invite in by sharing life with people. But I think our marriage is probably more vital because we have these interesting people. So the our core housemate right now is the music director of three different chorus and orchestras in our little town. He mm -hmm. drives over from Indiana for three, four days a week, and he goes back to teach. Um, and that's been wonderful. And he doesn't, we never charge rent. We People help with expenses, but James doesn't pay anything because that's our contribution to sustaining the I music see. community in this little town. And we got through COVID. He he still came back after COVID. <laughs> so I know that you have a son, you and Jim have uh, birth to son, and you also have other adult children in your life. So tell us a bit about that, we your have, expanded um, family unit. Yeah. So our son, we have one birth child that was born into that governor's school environment. Um, and it's interesting. He He's uh, more of an introvert, I think he'd agree. Um, so he was sometimes uh, back offish about some of the people that entered our life, but it's just, the, this is the way it is. But he says about his wonderful grandparents that he had really had four sets of parents. There's always someone to come home to and to read to him. Um, and so that was that was a blessing, I think, in, in, in his life. And, uh, but then, one of my, um, the best service learning student I had, it was kind of helping me run service learning projects under the Bonner Foundation, which is another another scholarship program that I got to be the researcher of um, in several college, uh, 25 colleges. So anyway, she got pregnant. She'd been raising herself since she was 15 on this financial uh, scholarship award um, going to college. And I said, you can't do this. So she moved into her house with her baby and we're really family now. So that baby just had a baby at age 21. So we're great grandparents and um, there's just no doubt about that, right? That um, we, and she, she is of the belief too, of the idea that you, families are made, are, are constructed. You know, we have our biological families. But. And then another of our students from 20 years ago uh, who took Jim's leadership course, you know, much like the kind of material that you two teach, uh, he came back to be the village manager. So he and they're at their um, interracial international family and grandmas are quite far away or hard to get to. So we're grandparents for those kids as well. And then uh, we we help harbor an, another woman and her child. So that, that, that's, I'm sort of tapping out, I think at, at, at four families. <laughs> you think so? <laughs> that's, that's remarkable. Um, you retired. Um, in fact, your retirement from Walden led to my retirement from Walden because I didn't want to work with anyone else. So what's it like? What's the experience of transitioning into retirement? Well, and, and when I listen to other episodes in your series, I, I think about how uh, it reminds me of our peer group and the incredible changes people around me. Our town is very well educated and aging, right? People who got to afford to live here, right? And so, so many people around me. So I was looking for visual aids. There was my academic cap. I can't even find my academic gown. So now, <laughs> now I'm, I'm a, you know, Gardner Cheryl. <laughs> and, 
got to keep the sun off your skin, right? You know, so, and we have a wonderful backyard um, that I get to return to after Florida. And in Florida, it's 11 acres that uh, share these buildings. And um, myself and another Quaker and a third person are the landscape committee. I get to go out with big tools and saw down big 11 foot fronds from trees and drag them to the debris pile. And um, so it's basically good for my bodies except my shoulders and um, keeping my energy up. But um, I've always liked to clean messy things and or clean up a messy financially broke college, you know, where I think I was audacious enough, audacious enough to think that I could keep any college more fiscally healthy than it was, you know, not appreciating the complex systemic things, plus the rising healthcare costs and everything that has affected our generation, right? And the institutions around us. So um, I, I have surprised myself looking at fellow more academic oriented peers. I am so retired, so, so, so retired <laughs> from, from work. And even the word career is like, it never really felt like a career. It was a calling and, uh, and I was blessed to have opportunities to follow my calling, right? And instead of to follow a tenure track and stick to it because it was security, right? So it was more like, what's the next opportunity? And then we were supported in it. So I don't know. I want to do other things. I can't, I, I can't keep all those balls in the air and the new balls I, I want to have in the air. So mm -hmm. that's, and I gave away my books. A lot of us talk about downsizing, right? So we had thousands of books and had built this like entire wall of a bookcase. And so I gave whole sets of books away. I gave all the service learning materials to the service learning program at Wittenberg University. All the religion and education and spirituality books that um, Wilberforce uh, this has a small divinity school. And it was a thrilling experience to find this library that wanted these books. So that's felt really good. and. Um, I got, you know, I got more to do, but it was a passage to dispense with those things. So, um, if you, so what are you filling your bookshelves with now? Well, I'm learning to to read on, um, to read on what's it called, Libby and Hoopla, so that I don't have to buy as many books. I read really fast, and I always thought retirement would be a bit more reading, but so far I haven't really had time because we also, in the same period of time, because we left. We leave this house, except for James, the musician. We brought, we're bringing our bedroom to the first floor. Jim 77, it just in anticipation of that year 80, you know, where the risk if you fall, it has greater consequences. And um, it's gonna be a six month process to now find new places for half as many things as I have, you know, can, can afford to find spaces for. <laughs> so reading Gail, is Gail can relate to that for sure. Twice, yes. So you can ask me any questions. <laughs> <laughs> I took up singing again after COVID. Singing in choruses is thrilling for me. And I heard one of your other interviewees talk about the meditative or the stress reduction when you sing a tenor part and I don't have perfect pitch. I can't think about anything else when I'm singing. Like, mm -hmm. where is that half step? down to that G, what's going on over there in the alto section, you know, so that's, that's, that's really a good thing, but it's very, it, it's, it's stressful too, because you got to get up to a certain level, so the concert's on Sunday night, rehearsals tomorrow. Wonderful. Right. Gail, do you have any comments, well, questions? Tell me, uh, Cheryl, you're, you're, you, you said you're really into retirement. 
really into it. And so how, what, what does that mean to you exactly? I might cry to think about it. I don't know when in my life I have let myself just be in the moment, mm -hmm. unless it was like something I, you know, made happen, like, you know, singing, right? Yeah, okay, let's make an appointment. I'm going to sing for two hours and I'll be in the moment during that time where I'll steal some time to garden. But the, the do it list on keeping so many balls in the air. So this, I'm still not used to this idea that I can wake up in the day and I have hours and hours of unscheduled time, which, you know, still gets filled up, but I don't anticipate boredom ever. Uh, we, we might, we might see where we get and maybe there'll be new projects, but just, I'm just sort of enjoying this idea of doing something well. Like if I say that little corner needs cleaned, I'm not, a, you know, I haven't been a clean housekeeper, but it's like, oh, that was really satisfying. Um, <laughs> or it's my, our son called last night and said the after school babysitter just bagged on us. Can you come? So it's a half an hour away, got in the car and I got three precious hours with the grandkids. And mm. so that's wonderful. A gift really. It's a gift. A gift. Yeah. So um, do you think about aging and your own aging process? Yes. You're, you're so, I know you're, you're remodeling your home to accommodate. Right. right. Um, a little more sobriety about uh, bodily weakness <laughs> to take care of like, oh, I have an infection. I got to get on top of this right now. Oh, my shoulders. I've been ignoring them for years. Right. What am mm -hmm. I going to do about this pain? What if it you know, gets worse? Um, trying watching lots of watching other people how they're handling this you know my concern about my friends in their 80s and what am I who's going to be concerned about me and will I have freed other people concerns because I've managed that the choices well so that I can navigate whatever the 80s might bring right so I feel pretty empowered as a very healthy 71 year old although mm -hmm. that so we made that decision to keep me working. Now, Jim's six years older than me. It's many of the women in relationships with men, the men are older, mm -hmm. right? At least my generation. But so I worked for that financial deadline of, you know, to uh, retire at the 70, get the, and get social security benefit at 71 to maximize the financial values. That was kind of our financial plan. And fortunately, my body held out, although the work uh, fortunately also diminished. And then, um, Catherine and I watched the university go through some really significant changes with the new owner. And it freed me from having to learn my way through a new massive bureaucracy and a new software system and all those things that can be so crippling. Um, and less like, I love fabric. I love clothes. I love the thrift stores of Florida. Oh, it's incredible, right? The things you could touch and take home for $3.99, right? So what do I do now? Because I'm noticing the simplicity of life now. I don't need books because I can read it online and I wear the same three clothes to go out in the garden, right? So what was that about? And I thought I could bring my suit jackets from work. It's like, when am I going to get rid of these beautiful colored wolf fabric suit jackets? Like that, they, they symbolize a me that I don't think exists anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so giving import to those choices, like it's not just that I have too many clothes, I have to downsize, but what was that about? And who is, who was that person? And who am I now? And is it okay just to be who I am now? So I don't feel all this idea about career and calling 
it's like, I don't, I don't know what my next call to social justice will be aside from being a, a philanthropist with resources, which is a kind of easy, easy way to say, I'm going to help this, this cause, but I'm not out there collecting petitions right now or serving on too many boards, just a couple mm -hmm. boards. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll see, ask me in a year, right? <laughs> I think yeah, the, I think we'll want to have you back in about a year. <laughs> I think the idea of of really taking that time to see, well, what do I want to do now? And and what what is it that I really want to do? And also you said something about being in your 70s, being concerned about your 80s. I can tell you that when you are in your 80s, you will only think, well, what about when I'm in my 90s? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, Cheryl, and in last words, it's, it's been marvelous talking with you. So um, I could turn the Zoom camera around, but out the window is a decades-long dream of a, a raised bed garden. This is no ordinary raised bed garden, but it's this fulfillment of frustration with the deer that eat lots of things and the rabbits and right that we none of the neighbors we're all trying to figure out how to cage in our garden so it's it's raised up the the dirt is waist high right there's a little screen door all of this is recycled material right you walk into this little three-sided alcove right and the seeds all came up really fast and the deer fence is eight feet tall and it's like I've dreamed of this it's like I'm not going to try to garden again and be frustrated right? Because every year the deer or the rabbits come and ate anything. So it's that way that life, I never had time in other life to really do it right, right? And mm -hmm. so this is something I'm doing right. So it's satisfying because it's green, but it's also like perfection of a, and to say, I can spend money to hire somebody to put together these recycled materials to right. make, make this little dream happen. <laughs> That's great. Cheryl, thank you so much. It's just been a, a True pleasure to talk with you. That was a very fast 30 minutes. Yes, it is. <laughs> and listeners, thank you for your loyalty. Because of you, our numbers are growing all across the country and overseas. And this is a good thing. Still, we need more subscribers and reviews on Apple Play and YouTube. Support women over 70 and let your voice be heard. Help us change the conversation about women aging. Right. Thank you.